Hello, and welcome to Artbox. I'm your host, Jason, along with Desta. Our guest for this episode is Sheldon Scott. Sheldon is a performance artist here in the DC region. We sat down with him and had a nice in-depth interview with him. He tells us how he got his start and how current events affect his work and practices. And he gives us advice and encouragement to artists starting out. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Welcome to Art Box. Today we have the pleasure of having Sheldon Scott, performance artist, DC man around town, um, joining us. <laughs> um, what else am I going to say? Um, again, this is Art Box. You're listening to Art Box. Um, this is Desta, and Jason is here in the space. You know, if you say Art Box three times, an, uh, an artist gets his wings or her wings. Okay, okay really? all right. Okay, let's keep saying it. <laughs> I guess we just kick off our conversation. Um, again, thank you for joining us, Sheldon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. What got you actually started to the path you're on right now? It's kind of a loaded question, I know, but... Yeah, sure. Uh, and it was certainly not a direct trajectory. Um, you know, I started out my professional life after graduating from college, um, working in social work, and then eventually um, in psychotherapy, where I was doing substance abuse, mental health, and sex offender treatment. And uh, I had always had um, this um, kind of innate ability around that practice primarily because um built around listening you know active listening and um you know when i started doing that work uh moving to washington dc back in june of 2000 and started working in northern virginia um you know i did that work for uh three years and then really <clears throat> towards the end of that tenure just um kind of got inspired to scale the practice of healing you know there was a lot that i was learning you know while um practicing psychotherapy and um i wanted to kind of rethink this process of this practice of healing moving away from uh kind of a one-on-one -on -one environment to a way that we could create a more healing global space and I thought that, you know, effective way of doing that is through the arts. So I wasn't exactly sure, like, what art was mine to express or to engage. And um, started studying acting and uh, was doing some classes at Studio and Wooly and Shakespeare. Uh, got connected to storytelling, um, which was something that was you know, a part of my cultural identity as a Gullah Geechee uh, man coming from South Carolina, griot culture, storytelling culture is very much a part of who we are down there, you know, the oral narrative. Got an opportunity to start at what was then called Speakeasy DC, which is now Story District, and started telling stories there and got really excited about, you know, performance and art and the the, the very cathartic practice of sharing your story. But then at the same time, it's like, a, it's like really an opportunity to build the empathy muscle um, because, like, you know, you're able to relate and connect to people on these broad ideas that you were sharing in your story, even though your story was incredibly particular and unique to your identity, that there was a commonality that we all shared in these uh, broader human narratives. 
and just really was inspired by that and um that was like my first artistic expression so i started doing storytelling and basically focused on storytelling for six or seven years and got to a point where i felt like i wanted to give a little bit more depth and uh, texture to my narratives and I wanted to be relieved of the kind of theatrical obligation of storytelling. You know, it's it's very contractual space storytelling because like people come there and they expect in exchange for their money to be entertained. Um, you know, they expect to be able to wrap things up ne neatly and feel good regardless if you're um, doing a comedic or a dramatic piece. Like, you know, people want to walk away feeling good from that. And I wanted to be relieved of that. Yeah. So I wanted to be relieved of the obligation to entertain. Um, uh -huh. and I wanted to be relieved of the traditional storytelling storytelling narrative arc. You know, the beginning, the middle, the end, the exposition and all that stuff. So I got into performance artwork and um, did my first performance artwork in 2012 at the Emerge Art Fair. You know, and then after that, um, came back to Emerge in 2013. And um, that's when I actually started to produce fine art objects. And that's kind of where it all got started. And, you know, that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. So, like, you know, you, you talked about kind of this journey of going from kind of this structured form of storytelling to really move, removing the boundaries through art. Are there any, like, specific themes that you like to explore? You talked about kind of the personal aspect of the narrative. But is there anything that you kind of feel might be kind of concurrent throughout in terms of like how you, your approach to, you know, the performance art and the storytelling aspect. Yeah, so they're all incredibly autobiographical. Like, you know, the stories that I share are mine. And, um, you know, I source and farm a lot of the content that I use to make these expressions, uh, be it a fine art expression or storytelling expression are really kind of um, from the space of a childhood growing up a little black gay sissy boy in the rural south. You know, in, in both of those works, I do spend a lot of time like exploring uh, themes of black maleness, masculinity, um, you know, the mythology around black male supernaturality, kind of confronting the structures of my identities, um, you know, regardless of that relationship with it like you know if it's a very toxic relationship that i have with masculinity and that construct i still explore that as well as um the feminine expressions and the non-gender conforming expressions that have always been a part of my own personal identity so you see that a lot um in all of my works very interesting so you said supernaturality like you know what does that mean exactly like is that kind of the the view of like a black man as being um not human not mm -hmm. part of the human experience as existing in another space Absolutely. that's detached that actually is exactly what it is and it's like you know sometimes i think it's a word that i may have made up you know, depending on yeah, I, I did look it up I'm, in the dictionary. I didn't I didn't see it there. So I think yeah. it's an awesome word and we should start maybe a hashtag campaign for it. No, because sometimes it, it comes <laughs> up like depending on what I'm typing on, like sometimes there sometimes the computer's like, OK, yeah, supernaturality. And it's like, no, it's not a word. Um, right. Like, <laughs> well, you know, the exactly. mythical black, like you can do anything and be anywhere, but you're never really truly a part of the experience. Yeah. You are just there to aid and guide others. So the yeah. And the idea there is really kind of focused on um the, the the extraordinary strengths supposedly of like black men and like what they think about it's like really um kind of 
you know, the, the foundation of that is really this kind of hyper-masculine expression um, that sometimes is laid or weaved into uh, black male identities through, you know, multi, you know, through multimedia. And what supernaturality actually speaks about is like the real life consequences of these, of these uh, mythologies, like entering into people's minds and then eventually into people's practices. And it's like how you treat, how you relate, how you connect to the black male form. And, you know, and it's always this like this overtone of threat you know, based on the body that uh, you occupy. And, you know, and it happens and it manifests in so many ways. You know, it's like several times, you know, that I have been challenged in professional works um, spaces being, you know, a threatening person, a threatening being in these spaces. Like, you know, you know, and I think a lot of times, like, um, you know, people are either blissfully unaware um, of what they're saying when they say that, or they're very aware and very intentional about it. But yeah. what it does, it does assign my body with this this idea of um, you know impending threat functions as a part of this supernaturality, um, you know, kind of ideas. If I'm going to come in and actually kill everybody in the space, and actually, when you look at people who actually do that. They don't look like me. No, they do not. They look like you. They, they do look like me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't answer for them, but they, exactly, they do. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, these are know. like forever timeless themes, right? You know, this I is hope something... to put an end to that. Unfortunately. <laughs> you know, yeah. Through you know. my work. You know, I hope that work brings that, you know, at least that consciousness. Because there's one thing I think the first thing is like, is no one even um, openly addressing that. Like no one really wants to deal with this big elephant in the room. Like, you know, we still like, you know, up until the acts of terrorism that just happened a few days ago, you yeah. see how the media responds to this and they, you know, the lone wolf is always their kind of go-to, um, go mm -hmm. you know, and this idea about like the threat, you know, like the ideas and the constructs that we build and the landscape that we create for those identities to feel like they're so entitled to things that they don't have that they figure they can go in there and just destroy all life and all all, all things related to things that they can't access. Right. So that's, you know, and we and we haven't done dealt with that. And I figured if we can put that conversation first and foremost, then maybe we could actually get to some some space where we understand that this kind of thing has to end because, you know, like no one wants to, you know, I just feel like I just can't actively allow something like this that I am aware of to continue um, and eventually impact, um, you know, some child that I want to create a better world for. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. like for my nieces and my nephew, yeah. like I feel like I have to be active about that so they don't have to because that literally could kill them. Mm -hmm. Literally. And no, no figurative here. Literally, yeah. Well, and it's also, in my opinion too, is that they should relabel it as it is domestic terrorism. There is no way around yeah. that. It is <laughs> domestic terrorism. And we do have laws on the books on that, so let's take care of it. But then these people, just to be polite about it, uh, are taking a shortcut if you catch my drift mm -hmm. and is really more of a hole for a community because you know like what happened in california you know those people will never have the full answer about why that guy went into that that bar mm -hmm. um you know also with the the sandy hook what happened with the kids up there in parkland you know it's like i can keep going on and on about that unfortunately yes we can and you know the fact that certain people use it to fit an agenda you know they, yeah. they use these violent acts to justify you know certain agendas that they have in terms of characterizing certain types of people yeah. as perpetrators as you know violators as potential exactly. threats when at the end of the day again it's this is homegrown domestic terrorism is not applicable to single out a, a community or specific people or no. 
you know, international threats as really being the source. A lot of this is culturally related. This is yeah. our culture. This has become mm-hmm. our culture, unfortunately. It, unfortunately, it's become our culture as of now. And now I have to worry about if I walk down the street, if I'm going to get shot. You go to a club. Or, or go, go to a to, club or go, go to a to theater. yoga class. Yeah, yoga class. Or if you're a black man just walking down the street. Exactly. You know. You're a woman um, jogging. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're a security guard working at a club trying to protect people. Right. And end up getting murdered. Getting murdered, yes. Doing your job to protect people. Yeah. Because you're a black man. Yeah. There's no such thing as a good guy with a gun. There yeah. is a certain type of person with a yeah. gun that is acceptable. Anybody else is. Yeah. Well, even then, the people who that's should that's have bad. guns, uh, the law enforcement, you know, they're trained. But even then, that's not perfect either. Exactly. So that, you know, but that's the kind of like conversations I want the, the, the work that I do to provoke. Right. Because that's the only way we're going to get to that resolution. And that's the only way we can break down these narratives and these tropes that we all just mentioned. There's definitely um, real life value to that because, you know, you're, you're forcing people to break binary which i feel is like a major function of um art is to like give people opportunities to think about new ways around old problems you know fixing those problems that art above all has the um amazing ability to do that you know science and academia and all these other um things have just become too politicized and um you know narratives have been manipulated and and, and data actually is like vulnerable to manipulation as well too, depending on who you're talking to about like how it suits their their needs. But art has a way of bringing people into the conversation, creating access into places where people normally wouldn't have conversation, and then empowering people to think about things differently. And you're you're talking about activism, right? Like you're talking about really like affecting change and you know opening people's eyes through a creative or various creative types of mediums. You know, given that you've talked about some of the challenges you've had as a black man, you know, navigating um, and, you know, really, um, you know, being viewed a certain type of way before you've even had an opportunity maybe to express yourself. How do you really navigate, you know, the art world in that way? Um, Kind of having, you know, gone through this and really looking for, you know, to really, it sounds like you're trying to connect with the now and as well as your personal narrative. What's your approach to that? Um, You know, this, this, um, you know, like the, the kind of temperature of the art world right now is definitely uh, a lot less cold to uh, people from my perspective and my identity. Like, you know, the art world and the institutions are, for whatever reasons now, really trying to make way into exploring these narratives that have been shared in visual arts over time that have just not been afforded the opportunity to be a part of these institutional and global conversations in the way that they have. So, you know, like going into it, like, you know, first and foremost, like, you know, I I realized that, you know, that I have a responsibility, you know, to make a work that is honestly connected to its source material. Is it something that I should be expressing you know and if that work is responded to by the institution or by the art world you know what that simply does is allow that work more breathing room you know Mm -hmm. it clears kind of a space 
for that work and it kind of removes some of the resistance not all of the resistance but some of the resistance to the work you know being explored and experienced by a broader swath of people uh-huh. and um, you know in the institution and this like quote unquote art world are all very pivotal in that you mm-hmm. know because they literally get to decide who sees what and when and you know so like navigating that space you know has really been committed to making work that is honest and that does what it's supposed to do and kind of getting out of the way of the work you know the one thing um you know i always say about like my work my work is incredibly personal and autobiographical but i would never put myself in between my work in the public my my stance to my practice is actually getting behind my work and pushing it forward you know i think that that approach helps to kind of push and maybe sometimes bulldoze and force this work into dialogues where it may not have been traditionally uh, embraced, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, based on its content. And then realizing when those opportunities do present themselves, that I remain true to that, you know. So like when I got the opportunity to present a work at the National Portrait Gallery, the responsibilities about being in that space and that environment and in the moment that that work is being mounted in that space, you know, I realized that I have ownership of an institution that has not been afforded to large swaths of people and primarily people who look like me so in you know in those few hours when i'm mounting this ephemeral work in that space you know that ownership i realized that i have to create an opportunity where i can scale that ownership if just for the three or four hours that i'm in there and create that access um that just normally wouldn't exist in other conditions so i mean you know so that's you know how i i envision how i deal with the institution <laughs> yeah it was also a I saw that piece. It was very moving. And Thank and you. you were able to get people to tour through and follow you along on the journey that you had during the piece, you know, and it ended very powerfully. I don't know if there's video or pictures out there of the piece. I like how it ended where you had the chains and the ropes on you. You were just still pounding away, making rice. And uh, I thought that was very, very touching, very powerful. And it did speak to where you came from and where you grew up in that area. When you uh, started actually uh, going through a practice of making the physical work, did that come from the same place as your performance art too, uh, from like stories from home, so to speak? Did it come from you know uh, another place or a new place that you started to develop form from doing performances? No, it, it's 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 a function. It's definitely extended. Um kind of exploration of the performance based work is you know right now in my practice I still consider performance to be my primary practice so all of the work that you see um, not necessarily ephemera but that work is inspired by the performances that you know that I put forth to answer or pose a question Um, even the photography you know the photo based work that comes out of it those actual photographs happen before the actual performance does and um they're shot in studio because i didn't want to flatten the ephemeral experience present that as a direct relationship of or derivative of the actual performance yeah you know because the performance has qualities that just cannot be measured any other way other than your presence um you know the sense of sound the sense of smell all of these other senses that are, you know, exclusively experienced in the ephemeral practice. Yeah. But like, you know, the work that comes out of it, like the sculptural work as well too, all of those things are informed or connected, but they're 
really designed to be own stand-in, standalone piece of artwork. Uh-huh. Where yeah. you don't have to directly reference or experience the ephemeral to understand or build relationship with that work. So all of it comes from that, but we like the objects that are created, uh, the durable part of my practice. They all come from a, um, of a performance-based experience. I feel like a lot of the work that I create, if, um, the durable works are like kind of Trojan horses. They they capture you. They have an aesthetic. You know, anytime I re- and you know introduce the work to the public, you know I fill it with intentions. Like these are all the things that I want to do. Um, but like when it comes to impact, I have no control whatsoever over impact. Like I don't know how the work is going to yeah. like build relationship with people. So. And I don't, I don't, I don't burden myself with that challenge. So if people like, you know, when that work was shown in Miami back in 2014, people were in front of it, you know, doing peace signs, like, oh, look at this. Look at this. This is cool. Yeah. And not, not knowing the meaning and, oh. I was like, yeah, you know, it's like only those neon had tentacles and it can just like (laughs) zap zap people. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, um, you know, that's just the nature. And, you know, the hope is maybe one day they'll be like, wait a minute. You know, and then, you know, because it is, you know, it I think it is useful for the work to um, bring about self-evaluation and, like, you know, people to think about themselves um, in a bit more critical sense. Okay, so, you know, we've talked about the local angle, and um, you have a, a, a unique trajectory um, as it relates to your career as an artist, um, transitioning from one in mental health to, you know, something more creative, but still relative in the same sense it's, mm-hmm. it's still it's a form, form of social work really Definitely. um yeah what advice do you have for other artists who are up and coming who are you know maybe looking to transition who have t- take it from a, a loved hobby of sorts or something that's been mm-hmm. interconnected their entire life but you know are ready or thinking about stepping out into this space and looking to sustain themselves what advice do you have for sure you know, I would say definitely like when you're when you're carving out a path like that, um, you know, it is a path that you just have to carve up for yourself because there's no shared trajectory to this space, to this destination, whatever that might be. And the process of clearing out that path is clearing out, you know, the tropes and the mythologies that like hold you back. You know, thinking that there is a perfect time. There is no such thing as a perfect time. Um, every time is just as bad as the next. So if you go into it thinking that this is going to be worse, this is going, this is going to be a really bad time to do it, then you'll never be disappointed. So um, definitely getting out that. And then understanding, you know, that this, this expression um, of art is a vulnerable act. It is an act of humility. This is not... This is not a grandstand, you know, this is not, it's not the attention, you know, it's not the work. It's, you know, it's not you, it's the work. And so often, you know, at times we get caught up in the, the being of the, the me of being the artist, but it really isn't about the artist, it's about the work and you have to surrender yourself to the work. Um, you know, and if you're going to make it and you're going to allow that work to dictate when it's going to be made, how it's going to be made, you know, that's a very humbling process. You know, if you ever want to get anywhere, you know, it is really about surrendering about the work because it doesn't matter like who you know, who knows you. Um, it really is at the end of the day, the relationship about, you know, built around the work that you're doing and the conversations that you're creating. And um, I just can't stress how important enough that that is um, because we do think that, 
egos have functions here when they really don't it's like if anything you're going to be much more vulnerable than you ever been um you know because when you put your work out there in public you become a part of the public trust and sometimes not all of the public trusts you and you're going to be confronted with those challenges that's the kind of thing that should make your work stronger because you listen and you challenge and you push you know i, I just think you know for anyone who wants to get into this space like you you have to realize that it is all about the work and very little about you and if you just keep it that way and like i mentioned earlier you get behind the work and push then you'll be fine be vulnerable be yeah open yourself up that is yeah uh well i want to say thank you for taking the time again sir i appreciate it for coming on art box and um i was very excited to be here and yeah you know very excited about you guys continuing to do the good work that you're doing oh yeah we're we're here to, to help more and to explore the stories of contemporary artists yeah so that's that's the whole point and talk them to them yeah. awesome. <laughs> all right thank you sir thank you Thank you to Sheldon for taking the time and sitting down with us. You can learn more about Sheldon on the web at sheldonscottstudios.com and on Instagram at Sheldon A. Scott. You can find this episode and past episodes of Artbox on Mixcloud at Artbox in the DMV. And once again, thank you for listening.